Welcome to your weekly Come Follow Me with David Ridges podcast. I'm your guest host, Ari Vandegraaff. I'm the author of the Scripture Power Activity Book and the forthcoming Super Sunday Activity Book. This week we are covering 3 Nephi chapters 12 through 16. In 1982, the church added the subtitle, Another Testament of Jesus Christ, to all editions of the Book of Mormon. It's not hard to see why. Every substantial prophet in the Book of Mormon testified of Christ. In fact, within years of his family's journey to the Promised Land, Lehi prophesied that 600 years after he left Jerusalem, a prophet would the Lord God raise up among the Jews, even a Messiah, or in other words, a Savior of the world. Nephi, Lehi's son, wrote, And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies, that our children may know to what source they may look for remission of their sins. The record found in 3 Nephi is a culmination of 600 years of Nephite and Lamanite history. And, as rewarding and enriching as the past eight months of Come Follow Me study have been, this is what we've been working towards. Over the past two weeks, we've covered the first 11 chapters in the book of 3 Nephi. Often, in our rush to get to Christ's visit to the Nephites, we brush over some pretty significant events that preceded his appearance. Let me highlight just a few of those events. 21 years before Christ's visit, the Lamanite nation was folded into the Nephite nation, numbered among the Nephites, and any curse laid upon the Lamanites was taken from them. You can read about this in 3 Nephi chapter 2, verses 14-16. through 16. Thirteen years before the coming of Christ to the Nephites in Bountiful, the Gadianton robbers were utterly defeated. Turn to 3 Nephi chapters 3 and 4 for the account of Gadianton wars. Within a decade, the two primary antagonists of God's people in the Book of Mormon are no more. The fact that all of this happens a few short decades before Christ's visit makes what happens next so heartbreaking. The Nephites and Lamanites, having resolved centuries of bitter feelings, and the people having finally rooted out and destroyed the secret combination that had vexed them for seventy years, give in to pride and throw it all away. If there ever was a people who should have coasted to the glorious coming of the Lord, it was the newly unified Nephite and Lamanite nation. Instead, it is an internal not external enemy, that leads to the downfall of their faith, government, and peace. Perhaps I misspoke when I identified the Lamanites and the Gadianton robbers as the two primary antagonists of God's people in the Book of Mormon. For it is pride, once again pride, that leads to the Nephite nation's fall just four years before Christ's coming. There is a message here for those of us who purport to be living in the latter days. If our circumstances mirror those of the Nephites prior to Christ's visit to the Americas, we might need to worry less about outside enemies and worry more about internal weaknesses in our preparations for the coming of Christ. We know too well what happens to the Nephites next, terrible destruction corresponding to Christ's crucifixion, and it's all justified too. This is a people who grew angry with the prophet Nephi, not because he shared a message they didn't believe, but rather because it were not possible that they could disbelieve his words, 
for so great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Fortunately, the destruction subsides, the darkness dissipates, and the Nephites begin rebuilding their civilization. Sometime later, Christ makes his miraculous appearance to the Nephites and begins his teachings. Please note, from here on out when I say Nephites, I'm including Lamanites as well. Although, as we've previously discussed, those Lamanites are now self-identifying as Nephites. Christ's teachings to the Nephites cover 3 Nephi chapters 11 through 26. Today, we're focusing on 3 Nephi chapters 12 through 16. In 3 Nephi chapters 12 through 14, Jesus shares a sermon very similar to the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And why wouldn't he? As the influential Christian thinker St. Augustine wrote, If anyone will piously and soberly consider the sermon which our Lord Jesus Christ spoke on the mount, as we read it in the Gospel according to Matthew, I think that he will find in it, so far as regards to the highest morales, a perfect standard of the Christian life. The Sermon on the Mount and the Book of Mormon equivalent, the Sermon at the Temple, point us from the Law of Moses towards a more excellent way. This is a humongous deal. For over a millennium, the Israelites had been following the law of Moses. Now, in his sermon at the temple, Christ changes everything. Like many of you, I've been excited by the numerous changes to church programs announced by President Nelson since the beginning of his presidency in January 2018. But a change to the Sunday block from three hours to two hours is nothing compared to the replacement of sacrifices and burnt offerings with the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The combining of the high priest group and the elders quorum is nothing compared to a change from thou shalt not kill to whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of his judgment. The replacement of home and visiting teaching with ministering is nothing compared to the replacement of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth with turn the other cheek. And the fact that sister missionaries can now wear pants and elders can wear blue button-down shirts without ties is nothing compared to, well, actually that really is a pretty big deal. Moving on. The point is, the sermon at the temple represents a huge paradigm shift for the way the Nephites practice their religion. It was worlds more drastic than anything we've seen in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints since its foundation. One gets the sense in reading the Book of Mormon that the people in the Americas were more prepared for these changes than those of the Old World. As early as Nephi, Book of Mormon prophets were preparing their people for the coming of Christ and his new law. Here's what Nephi said regarding the law of Moses and the coming of Christ. And... Notwithstanding, we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses, and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ, until the law shall be fulfilled. After the signs of Christ's birth, some Nephites erroneously preached that Christ's birth signified the end of the law of Moses. They soon became convinced of their error. But the point is, these people knew what was coming. And yet, 3 Nephi chapter 15 records that at the end of his sermon at the temple, Christ perceives that there were some among the multitude confused as to what was to become of the law of Moses. 
Discerning the confusion, Christ said the following concerning the law of Moses. Marvel not that I say unto you that old things had passed away, and that all things had become new. Behold, I say unto you that the law is fulfilled that was given unto Moses. Behold, I am he that gave the law, and I am he who covenanted with my people Israel. Therefore the law in me is fulfilled. For I have come to fulfill the law, therefore it hath an end. Behold, I do not destroy the prophets. For as many as have not been fulfilled in me, verily I say unto you, shall all be fulfilled. And because I said unto you that old things have passed away, I do not destroy that which had been spoken concerning things which are to come. For behold, the covenant which I have made with my people is not all fulfilled. But the law which was given unto Moses hath an end in me. Behold, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end, and ye shall live. For unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. Behold, I have given unto you the commandments. Therefore, keep my commandments. And this is the law and the prophets, for they truly testify of me. Christ is extremely patient in understanding of what it is he is asking of these people. Their entire mode of worship has been turned upside down. Over the course of his two-day ministry among the Nephites, and then during subsequent visits to his disciples, Christ continues to teach his people what his church should look like now. Every day, all over the world, truth-seekers are going through the same experiences. Their entire mode of worship is being turned upside down as they respond to the missionaries' invitation to accept the restored gospel. For those of us who are already members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we would be wise to follow Christ's example and patiently lead these seekers of truth through the more confusing aspects of our religion. Entire volumes have been written on the text of Christ's teachings on the Mount and later at the Temple. Rather than cover every bit of wisdom included in these chapters, I'd like to pull a few items that have stood out to me during my most recent read-through. Having said that, I would strongly encourage all of us to read and reread 3 Nephi chapters 12 through 14. It's powerful stuff, especially when we reread it with new eyes and consider how deeply it must have impacted those who received these teachings for the first time. Let's talk salt. Today, salt is not held in the greatest of esteem. Doctors will tell you that a high-sodium diet can lead to high blood pressure, heart disease, or even stroke. So it is important to understand the historic significance of salt when reading 3 Nephi chapter 12, verse 13. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth. But if the salt shall lose its savor, wherewith shall the earth be salted? The salt shall be thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Anciently, salt was extremely important. According to Wikipedia, salt's ability to preserve food was a founding contributor to the development of civilization. According to Time Magazine, the history of the world, according to salt, is simple. Animals wore paths to salt licks. Men followed. Trails became roads, and settlements grew beside them. When the human menu shifted from salt-rich game to cereals, more salt was needed to supply their diet. 
but the underground deposits were beyond reach, and the salt sprinkled over the surface was insufficient. Scarcity kept the mineral precious. As civilization spread, salt became one of the world's principal trading commodities. When Christ compares his followers to the salt of the earth, he is paying them a great compliment. Salt was a critical item in both Jewish and Nephite cultures. Prior to the days of reliable refrigeration, salt was needed to preserve the food that served as subsidence to civilizations. We still need salt in our diet. The problem today is we often take in too much of a good thing. Given the importance of salt to civilization in the time of Christ, it makes more sense that he would compare his followers to the salt of the earth. They were charged with sharing his message to the wider world. In 3 Nephi chapter 16, Christ alludes to this idea of the salt of the earth when he discusses the role that the Latter-day Church will have later in sharing the gospel. In the event that the Latter-day Church shall reject the gospel, Christ says, They shall be as salt that has lost its savor, which is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of my people. While speaking to the priesthood of the church, Carlos E. Acey of the Quorum of the Seventy said the following regarding these verses. The word savor, S-A-V-O-R, denotes taste, pleasing flavor, interesting quality, and high repute. When the Lord used the expression savor of men, he was speaking of those who represent him. He was referring to those who have repented, who have been washed clean in the waters of baptism, and who have covenanted to take upon them his name and his cause. Moreover, he was speaking of those who would share by covenant his priesthood power. He was speaking of you and me. A world-renowned chemist told me that salt will not lose its savor with age. Savor is lost through mixture and contamination. Similarly, priesthood power does not dissipate with age. It, too, is lost through mixture and contamination. Flavor and quality flee a man when he contaminates his mind with unclean thoughts, desecrates his mouth by speaking less than the truth, and misapplies his strength in performing evil acts. King Benjamin cautioned, Watch yourselves and your thoughts and your words and your deeds and observe the commandments of God. I would offer these simple guidelines, especially to the young men, as the means to preserve one's savor. If it is not clean, do not think it. If it is not true, do not speak it. If it is not good, do not do it. In three separate portions of his sermon at the temple, the Lord instructs us to be quick to forgive. First, when he exhorts us to move to a higher law than an eye for an eye. Second, when he clarifies that if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And finally, when he counsels against critiquing motes in our brother's eyes while ignoring beams in our own eyes. A moat is defined as a tiny piece of a substance, while a beam is considerably bigger. I can confidently say that this would have been hard doctrine for saints 2,000 years ago, because it continues to be hard doctrine for saints today. At least, it's hard doctrine for this Latter-day Saint. Forgiveness is hard because it is hard to move on from hurt, 
Sometimes I'll catch myself plotting to hold on to the hurt for a little while, to play with it, and then let it fester. After I've grown bored with it, I figure I'll let it go. The problem with this type of behavior is sometimes you don't let it go. Sometimes you only think you let it go, but it returns when you're stung with the next hurt. And ultimately, is like the old saying, holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It doesn't end well. You don't want to take my word for it? Then how about President Gordon B. Hinckley's? This is from a 1991 Ensign article. Guy D. Guy D. Mapazant, the French writer, tells the story of a peasant named Hachicorn. While walking through the public square, he caught sight of a piece of string lying on the cobblestones. He picked it up and put it in his pocket. Later in the day, the loss of a purse was reported. Hachicorn was arrested and taken before the mayor. He protested his innocence, showing that it was only a piece of string that he had picked up, but he was not believed and was laughed at. The next day the purse was found, and Hachicorn was absolved of any wrongdoing. But resentful of the false accusation, he became embittered and would not let the matter die. Unwilling to forgive and forget, he obsessed and talked of little else. Everyone he met had to be told of the injustice. Obsessed with his grievance, he became ill and died. In his death struggles, he repeatedly murmured, A piece of string, a piece of string. With variations of characters and circumstances, that story could be repeated many times in our own day. How difficult is it for any of us to forgive those who have injured us? My brothers and sisters, let us bind up the wounds caused by plans to get even with those who have wronged us. We all have a little of this spirit of revenge in us. Fortunately, we all have the power to rise above it. I plead with you to ask the Lord for strength to forgive. It may not be easy, and it may not come quickly, but if you will seek it, there will come into your hearts a peace. This is the sweet peace of Christ, who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I found one thought that helps me forgive. Our ultimate goal is to become more like Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think about the amount of forgiveness I'm asking of them. Hardly a day goes by when there isn't something I need to repent of. Given the amount of forgiving I'm expecting of them, I've wondered how much more forgiveness they are being entreated to grant. I suspect hundreds of millions of us, if not more, are pleading for their forgiveness daily. If my goal is to become more like them, how is it I can't forgive the meager amount of offenses I've suffered from time to time? Let's now move on from a hard doctrine to perhaps the hardest doctrine. As President Nelson put it in an October 1995 General Conference address, If I were to ask which of the Lord's commandments is most difficult to keep, many of us might cite Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Or, as it is recorded in 3 Nephi chapter 12, Therefore I would that ye should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Perfection is a tall order. Fortunately, as President Nelson explains in his 1995 address, it doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. Recently, I studied the English and Greek editions of the New Testament, concentrating on each use of the term perfect and its derivatives. 
studying both languages together provided some interesting insight since Greek was the original language of the New Testament. In Matthew 5 and 48, the term perfect was translated from the Greek teleos, which means complete. Teleos is an adjective derived from the noun telos, which means end. The infinitive form of the verb is teleono, which means to reach a distant end, to be fully developed, to consummate, or to finish. Please note that the word does not imply freedom from error. It implies achieving a distant objective. In fact, when writers of the Greek New Testament wish to describe perfection of behavior, precision, or excellence of human effort, they did not employ a form of teleos. Instead, they chose different words. Perfection, as used in this scripture then, doesn't mean without blemish, but rather complete. This would explain why Christ doesn't include himself in the admonition found in Matthew, but later does in 3 Nephi. When he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't yet complete. Yet after his resurrection, when he addressed the Nephites in Bountiful, he was. Moroni offers us more hope in our quest to complete Christ's commandment to be perfect. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfected in Christ. Did you catch that? By the grace of Christ, we may be perfected. I like to think of our journey with Christ towards perfection as that of an apprentice and a master craftsman. In colonial times, an apprentice signed a contract with a master craftsman for a period of time, typically seven years, to work for the craftsman with the intended purpose to become a master craftsman at the end of the apprenticeship. The apprenticeship was difficult, but not without reward. An apprentice's future prospects were far greater than those who took on other remedial jobs. Any work performed by the apprentice ultimately belonged to his master. Since it was understood and expected that an apprentice would make mistakes, this was a good thing. The master craftsman could review and fix the mistakes of his apprentice before presenting the work to the public. Throughout all of this, a wise master would help his apprentice understand how to avoid certain mistakes in the future. In this way, an apprentice's mistakes became part of his education. The coursework for each apprentice was unique. Working one-on-one with an apprentice, the master could tailor his training specific to the strengths and weaknesses of his apprentice. In this sense, it mattered less how an apprentice performed compared to his peers than the strengths of his relationship with his master. If an apprentice remained with his master through his contracted period of time, the end result was a graduation from apprentice to master himself. We are apprentices to the master carpenter, Jesus Christ. And at the risk of bending this analogy to its breaking point, we are on a full-ride scholarship. Paul teaches that we are bought with a price, Be not ye the servants of men. That price is, of course, the atonement of Jesus Christ. He has paid for us, and we have contracted with him through the covenant of baptism to turn our lives over to him. 
our contract with Christ is for much longer than the seven-year contract colonial apprentices entered into. But the skills we are developing are far more impressive and difficult to master than even the finest work completed by the finest craftsman. Therefore, it should come as no surprise nor disappointment that our apprenticeship continues far beyond this mortal life. Christ has invested far too much in us to abandon us uncompleted. In the end, though, the result of our apprenticeship is the same as that of an 18th century apprenticeship, a graduation from apprentice to master, joint heirs with Christ. This is why Christ can teach us, as he taught the Nephites upon his visit following his resurrection, what manner of men ought ye to be. Verily I say unto you, even as I am. With the understanding that Christ will work with us throughout our mortal lives and well into our post-mortal lives to achieve that goal, his admonition becomes much more achievable. Just like with colonial apprentices, the coursework for our apprenticeship is unique to each one of us. Some of our studies will be obvious to all those around us, but far more of our courses will be unique to the individual apprentice alone. Perhaps this is why our master regularly discourages us to judge those around us. We are simply not privy to what is going on in their lives or in the, or the lessons they are learning. Our coursework is a combination of required studies and electives. Some of our experiences on earth are universally experienced, while others may feel painfully unique to you alone. Rest assured that the master carpenter has experienced each of your experiences and therefore is uniquely qualified to mentor you through your coursework, no matter how challenging. Christ spoke comfort to Joseph Smith at a time when his apprenticeship was extremely challenging. During possibly Joseph's darkest days, while the saints were being cruelly thrust out of their homes in Missouri, and Joseph himself was imprisoned in the deplorable Liberty Jail, Christ spoke these words to his servant. And if thou shouldst be cast into the pit, or into the hands of murderers, and the sentence of death passed upon thee, if thou be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness, and all the elements combine to hedge up thy way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Understanding that this life is like an apprenticeship helps explain why bad things sometimes happen to good people. Like Joseph Smith above, sometimes our education requires some painful experiences that will ultimately be for our good. Because we are Christ's apprentices, we can know that he will make up the difference in our shortcomings. We are not perfect, nor will we ever be in this life, but the master carpenter doesn't expect us to be. As long as we continue in good faith to keep the covenants we've made with him, he reviews and corrects our work, and in his name it is perfect. When it comes to learning, there is nothing better than experience. On our path to eternal progression, we had to come to earth and experience the ups and downs of mortal life. We had to fall down pick ourselves up, and try again. We could only progress so far in the safety of our premortal state. Again, I want to turn to President Nelson and share his final thoughts on perfection 
in his October 1995 General Conference Address. We need not be dismayed if our earnest efforts toward perfection now seem so arduous and endless. Perfection is pending. It can come in full only after the resurrection and only through the Lord. It awaits all who love Him and keep His commandments. It includes thrones, kingdoms, principalities, powers, and dominions. It is the end for which we are to endure. It is the eternal perfection that God has in store for each of us. Of all the remarkable doctrine Christ teaches the Nephites after his resurrection, this is possibly the greatest. Perfection, through him, is possible. What an incredible, hope-filled message. Elsewhere in these verses, Christ counsels that by their fruits ye shall know them. I am so grateful to belong to a church that emphasizes such a wonderful message. I have a testimony of its truth, and I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Master. Amen.